most of our employees have my cell phone number. And if they really feel like it, or if they have a question, or if they feel unheard, or if they don't want to say something in a, in a bigger meeting where everybody's present, then they can really pick up the phone and give me a call. And I would really like to keep running the place that way. My guest today is the impactful Florian Gellinger, who is the owner and VFX producer of Rice. Rice created the visual effects for some of the biggest movies and series in recent history. Avengers, Matrix 4, The Kingsman, Stranger Things, Loki, and many more. Together, we talk about founding and owning a successful visual effects company, brand identity, and why Rice uses memes and puns for their marketing campaign. You are listening to The 21 Artist Show, a podcast that inspires creatives to make meaningful content to pursue their passions. I'm talking with creators, artists, and engineers about their careers, lessons they have learned, and how to make an impact. I'm your host, Alexander Richter. I'm a technical director and coach in visual effects, animation, and games. For more content, go to 21artistshow.com. Enjoy the show. It's awesome to have you on the show, Florian. Thanks for having me, Alex. One of the things that we always try to do on the show is to answer questions that are not so typical. And one of the things for, with you is that you are the co-owner of Rice. How did you came up to be the co-owner of Rice? And what does it mean to be the co-owner of a company? Well, let's say it's nothing that you necessarily plan on doing, right? It's it's uh, you, you kind of have this idea that... Um, You work well as a team. At the time, I kind of knew my my co-founders um, who owned the company with me together. Um, and uh, we had the choice either to be um, breaking up and kind of everybody doing their own thing, or we could stick together, um, which is kind of a very unique thing. If you once assemble a, a working team where everybody, like where you know each uh, other's strengths and weaknesses, And you know that this constellation of people works really, really well. Then obviously it's a once in a lifetime chance to take the next step and to found your own business. Um, it wasn't necessarily anything that I ever dreamed of doing. I never wanted kind of uh, the responsibility and kind of the, the corporate ownership. But at the time, it kind of felt like the... Um, the the right thing to do i was 27 i didn't have any other plans obviously i still wanted to work abroad which then kind of the company kept me from doing but um yeah by kind of a lucky lucky coincidence slowly but surely the big shows or the big films started doing post-production and, and visual effects also in Germany, which also then kind of changed our plan from initially wanting to do some sort of, well, you know, like television event film miniseries or, or independent cinema, art house stuff with uh, very unique visuals, kind of changed that a bit towards um, international blockbuster cinema. And then once you start that, you're aware of the risks involved because there's always the risk of failure. And that's kind of what you do mostly as an owner. It's kind of risk management. You're trying to um, be very realistic about your abilities of what you can do well um, and how you want to grow creatively and technically. Um, so obviously there is always the the company's reputation that you have to think about 
um, the financial stability and um, and yeah, kind of how to how to grow both. Um, one very important thing is, and I think we we talked about this uh, previously, that if you if you focus on a niche, then it's going to be very hard to have like a constant flow of work coming in. If you broaden your skill set and hire additional people who can do certain things really, really well, and you qualify yourself for a broader range of films to work on, or I think this is maybe applicable to every industry, um, the more you can offer, the more um, work will come in to keep you busy. And I think this has been kind of our undertaking over the last 15 years to kind of steadily but surely kind of grow the knowledge, grow the team, grow the abilities in the company and kind of tackle the technical hurdles that go along with it. And kind of that's where we are today. Um, I mean, obviously we're still here. Obviously we're doing well. And um, I mean, it's not, yeah, it's, 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 in the visual effects world, I think 10 years ago, no one, nobody would have seen this coming. What does it mean to be technically the owner of a visual effects company? Well, it means that you own a certain number of shares of the company. So in our case, it's kind of the company is owned by us four, um, the four co-founders, which means that from the start, everybody um, carried uh, like a quarter of the risk of the company, of the whole endeavor the investments, um, uh, the bank loans, etc. So um, that's kind of what it means in risk terms. And then, yeah, there, there are these two sides of, of the metal, right? So one side is if you have a flourishing business and you're able to kind of pay back all your, all your uh, bank loans um, that you need for the initial investment and you can finance um, all further growth out of your cash flow from incoming work, Brilliant, because then you're basically operating risk-free. And the other thing is the, the perks uh, uh, involve, obviously, like if the company does make a profit, which let's say in the visual effects world is not a standard, or let's say it's, uh, as, as you know, from the last decade or so, there is always like one or the other VFX company shutting down or um, going bankrupt or being bought by another entity and so on. So let's just say... If the company makes a profit, obviously you're participating in that. Uh, but um, yeah, that's that's kind of the the upside. The downside is that if you have commitments to certain uh, bank loans and such, then sometimes, especially in the early stages, you're liable for those. And that's kind of the the whole weight of financial risk that you're carrying. Was that something that you basically discussed in between your your as you as a group, or is that is it a of kind of a, a law thing, uh, something that you literally have, like you know, a company founding. Now there are the stakes, there are the parts, or is that something more a contract between between you four? Because I mean, we know like something if you do stock market or something, there is this exactly, but you're private as far as I know. Yes. Well, yeah, that's that's the the the, the precise thing. The the thing is, you wouldn't you wouldn't. I, I don't think you would found a company and kind of take that risk um of of ownership if you didn't have already guaranteed work coming in we were very fortunate at the time we knew a couple of uh, uh film producers uh german film producers um who kind of wanted us to do the work on their films 
So we kind of knew that we had work coming in and that we would be able to kind of make a living within these constraints of working in art house and indie film. So we knew kind of what kind of investments we could make, how much range or financial freedom we had at the time and so on. So we always were very realistic. We never invested in things that wouldn't make time and, and pay back the, their investment um, at any given moment. We were every, always very cautious. We knew that what was at stake. And also, obviously, like um, talking about these investments, I mean, that's the financial side, but just imagine what it means for your personal reputation if your if your company fails to um, deliver work on time and on budget because you've maybe gambled somewhere else. It's kind of your personal responsibility and your personal reputation that's at stake. So there's always a bit more than just the company because even if the whole idea of owning a company and running a company fails at some point, you would still want to work in this business. So it's, you know, like there are, there are a lot of different aspects involved. If you think too much about it, I think nobody would, would uh, necessarily get into this business. <laughs> but um, uh, I think um, if you're cautious and realistic and do your numbers, then, then you can actually make a living and, and make it work. So, I mean, yeah, as I said, we were incredibly fortunate that at the time, especially Marvel, when they started ramping up with their feature film business and uh, and Victoria Alonso was kind of taking taking a gamble with us, said like, hey, here are a couple of shots, you know, like um, try if you can do something better than what we currently have. And two days later, we presented something that they thought was something worth investigating creatively. So um, we kind of worked day and night. And then we were on board for the majority of Marvel films since then. And um, that was kind of our lucky moment. I think most entrepreneurs or, or business owners have hopefully have that lucky moment at some point in time. And then if you get along really, really well with your clients, then even better, you know, then it's kind of really a, a, like, especially with Marvel, we've had this long relationship and they've always given us stuff to work on that we previously hadn't done. So there is like an enormous amount of trust. Um, and obviously you don't want to um, disappoint anyone. So so you're trying extra hard and you're investing in, in various areas um, to, to push stuff out that is beyond expectation. And I think that's kind of the one lucky moment we had and then from there obviously like once you start building your reputation once you start building your showreel once you everybody else sees what you're doing and so on that you can cope with shows and work of a certain scale and then then it's making business acquisition and business development much much easier yeah i remember this quote by Elon musk like founding a company is like eating glass and looking into the abyss would you agree with that or what, what was your experience of the whole process and i mean still going with the ownership basically i don't know i think it's 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 really hard to say because um at the time i was 27 and i didn't have any any other plans so you know, I didn't have kids at the time. I didn't have any sort of um, responsibilities other than putting food for myself on the table and paying the rent. So 
it's easy in that moment in your life to make a commitment like this and and to take a risk. I think it's different when um, when you have a family, for example, and uh, you're you're gambling with um, the the family financials. Um, I don't know if I would have acted the same, but as I said, like we were very realistic, we were very uh, conservative with our numbers, and I don't think that we would have done it if we wouldn't have had the first bunch of shows coming in, kind of guaranteeing work from the get go. Um, eating glass sometimes, sometimes it can feel like it, but on the other hand, I don't think that Elon Musk has a lot of friends at Tesla. <laughs> so for us, it was more, we, we always felt more like this was our extended work family, so to say. So we enjoy coming to work and we love seeing everybody here doing well. And we get along with the team. We've got people who are here since day, day one, since for 15 years now, and who've, who are still here and run shows for us. So I think if you look at, at the bright side, then yeah, eating glass, obviously there are days like that where stuff just doesn't want to happen. But do you, do you not have that in any other profession, even when you're just in, in a normal employment uh, um, contract, like if you're in a staff position or something without the risk, you can, you can get criticized from team members. Things that you try or that you attempt can fail and you're still taking ownership of that attempt, so to say. So I think it's always a very emotional topic, but I wouldn't necessarily say that it feels like eating glass. It's... I really enjoy this more than I should for what it is like just seeing all my buddies at work every day. And that's, that's how we kept it. And that's kind of how it still feels, especially with all the other offices now in Munich, Stuttgart, Cologne and London, like picking up the phone, calling someone there and kind of really like feeling that there is, there is a connection and that these are people that you would genuinely like to have a beer with. That's kind of how I would like to put it. Like the the work family are people who would, who you would like to have a beer with, because you enjoy having a conversation that is not all about work. And I think we've got plenty of these people. I think you make you make a really good point with Elon Musk here. I think it is it is definitely probably a very pushy situation with him. He's probably pushing much more of his vision and his like he wants i think he wants a lot of control and he wa he has the vision that as as he proven most people don't have even without around him but i think it's exactly how you described it is this environment where it creates a dictatorship because it's the only way he seemed to work and progress at the same time so it's it's really interesting to to hear a different point of view because you you also have two roles at the same time as an owner and visual effects producer uh which kind of i think align in in this case for example financial situations but also divert in, in a lot of other situations so it's it's kind of interesting what i would be also interested because you described that you came together as this group and you had this choice between founding a company or or kind of breaking up which 
not everyone would choose has this choice at the moment because normally you would say like, oh, I will find a company. Um, but is there a goal that you have with Rise? Not really. No, I I think uh, we're we're doing really really well where we are. Um, London was already like opening the the office in London was already kind of a little dream come true because for everyone who's listening who's who's not based in Germany, Germany is a very unique VFX hub because there is no hub like in berlin we're pretty much the only ones in munich there are a couple of more companies then there's like smaller entities in stuttgart and and some people doing retouches in cologne maybe but you know it's it's like there is not this massive hub like there is in vancouver montreal london there is no major facility with a thousand people working there like in in wellington in new zealand um, so everything is very much scattered throughout uh, nationally all over Germany. So there is no, you're not bumping into other people once you get out of work from other facilities and you don't kind of share experiences and so on. Nobody's talking to others saying, hey, you know what, uh, my job at company XYZ sucks. Um, I really want to try something else. Um, or are you working on an interesting show? Are there any challenges? I know that you've previously done this with particles. How did you solve that? And so on. This kind of basically doesn't happen here as much because um, everybody is kind of just scattered. Um, and that's kind of what makes me always sad when I was visiting friends in London uh, in the early days of the Harry Potter franchise and so on. I was still staying in a youth hostel um, that was before Rise, and I was kind of seeing how they worked at, at the bigger companies in London, working on those cool shots that I could have never imagined to, to work on. And um, and I really loved the Friday pub nights when everybody was just coming out of work and everybody was having a pint at the pubs. And I thought like, okay, well, this is something that is going to be really, really hard to establish in Germany. I tried to give this group of people a voice by trying to put together a German chapter for the Visual Effects Society a couple of years ago, which worked really, really well. Um, then COVID came and we couldn't have all the meetings and screenings anymore that were essentially the, the core of, of what I was going for to really put people together in the same room despite working in different places um, or having like national events where people have to travel a bit, but then kind of have a meet and greet with others uh, at the FMX conference in Stuttgart, for example, we did that a couple of times. So all these things, you know, like to get people together in the same room to chat beyond company walls was always something that I admired in London. And that's kind of, that was kind of, something that we really wanted to do um, to go where the others are, to go where you find an existing ecosystem. And that's kind of why we opened in London. We have an amazing team with uh, Stu and Lara and Mark running the place. Um, really like generally nice people. The office looks amazing. And I just can't wait to grow the team there. Um, but we're always, as I said in the beginning, we're taking it st one step at a time. We're very conservative about growth. We're not projecting numbers saying like, hey, we want to be here in four years or something. That just doesn't happen because there are so many variables in doing business development 
in growing a team, in growing your abilities to cope with certain shot numbers or creature shots, for example, or, you know, like there are so many variables that I don't feel comfortable with making any projections on where we should be. I think we're at a stage where we do everything exceptionally well, except for large quantities of character shots. We do characters and creatures from time to time, um, just little snippets of a couple of shots here and there that happen to be in in our environment that we're doing for, for the rest of the show. Um, but um, that's definitely something that we'll look into um, to build a really, really strong creature pipeline that can cope with larger quantities um, so that we also have that because that's kind of, I think, still the last thing where I wouldn't say struggle because there is enough work out there. But uh, strategically for a company, if you would be working on a show that is clearly CG character driven and you're really good with simulations and environments and all that other stuff, you will not be working on that show because if those characters are supposed to be walking in the environment that somebody is considering you for and you don't have any character animation on your reel or let's say not the numbers of shots that would be required to pull off the show, then it's a matter of how many, how much talent you can gather to make it work. And that's always something where we are very cautious and our clients are very cautious for a very good reason. I think we can do a lot of things technically. I think we still have a little bit of a way to travel um, to do large quantities of character shots. But um, for like for the majority of things that we do on a daily basis, like we do really close up CG crowds with brilliant cloth simulation. Uh, and and um, we do, um, sometimes we do, like on Hellboy, we did a demon uh, with a human head and slime dripping down and tons of secondary effects simulations. Um, we did stuff for Lovecraft Country, a couple of characters that were really, really cute. So we're doing that sort of stuff, but maybe not on the scale that would be appropriate for the size of company that we are now. So maybe maybe that's a goal, but it's nothing that we're kind of actively pursuing in kind of pushing that way. We're kind of putting the building blocks in terms of pipeline into place. We're doing much more animation in the near future as, as we've done through our uh, feature film production company, Rise Pictures. Uh, with Dragon Rider, uh, an animated feature film. So in Munich, we're going to open uh, Rise Animation with um, a bigger animation team to do uh, Egrain the Brave for Rise Pictures. So I think those are essential bits and pieces to get people who really know how animation works, how the iterative process of, of going, like improving animation works, how to put a cut together that works and how cameras work, like the whole narrative aspect of it. And I think once we're there, uh, it's going to make the VFX side of creature and character work much easier as well. But um, let's see. I mean, as I said, it's like a slow moving process. Uh, we don't want to rush anything. We're not driven by investors who kind of put a gun to our head and say like, you guys have to deliver 4,000 creature shots in 22 or something, you know, it's nothing that we need to do. You cannot be everywhere at the same time. It's also a little bit too, too thin very fast. For me, Rise, I always want to say Rise FX. Rise is uh, kind of on the Houdini effect side. 
that's a little bit my perception of of the company so far. Um, and for example, if I think back, I was for example doing a launchpad internship at Framestore. Um, I think for example, Framestore and NPC are very famous for creature characters. And I think it's also a little bit related to the commercial department of there because I feel like most London commercials are kind of like a weasel uh, selling toothpaste or a bank account or something like that. It's like that's what it feels like at least. And I think there's this kind of synergy between this uh, elements of being used to have these creatures all the time, these characters all the time as the main focus of the product. Um, I think there is a little bit of of that coming from that but I absolutely understand i mean yeah um, uh, as i talked with uh, nicolas leblanc about their work on on i think Aven avengers or something was that where uh, ilm was involved and all the other companies and you instead of like there is less of a sharing situation where they share the hulk with you and you can just use it for your shot it's completely like it's your shot you do everything by yourself you have no kind of synergy not really uh multiple reasons and then it's end up like yeah yeah basically you have four versions of the hulk at the end of the day uh, each company has its own which is like wow uh, but yeah of course then it, it does like you don't get the shot if you cannot deliver the the main focus point of the or not not at the same level at least as for example i don't know ilm or something like that um or at least you can deliver, but people don't perceive you as someone who can, you know, like basically like your showreel is not full of this character shots. I agree. I mean, the effects side of things with kind of being in uh, Houdini house, I totally agree. That was kind of a very early uh, decision that we made to move all of our CG to Houdini. Um, I mean, we, we started off on Cloud Atlas um, and on Cloud Atlas, we had a couple of very challenging shots that um, involved water and and bubbles coming from a car that's being submerged and um, so at the time we thought like okay these are only two shots can we make those shots work entirely in mantra and can we render and light this in Udini and then we tried and based on that knowledge like that all this stuff worked really well and despite deep comp already existing at the time we were always very focused on getting our renders from one render package to not be mixing too much in terms of anti-aliasing um you know like there is always and, and motion blur it looks different it's just not 100 the same exactly so we always tried to get everything from one renderer and since render or since mantra was included in udini at the time and kind of worked out of the box for volumes and all this stuff we built a shader that worked just like the one in mental ray um and then started doing entire shows like the man from uncle was entirely rendered through dini and mantra uh, scene assembly was in maya but uh, but the rest of the show was was entirely like not just the effects bit but like really like scene layout in, to a certain extent simulations lighting rendering was all done in Rudini. And um, yeah, some some of our artists who who come, uh, who've previously worked in Canada or, or wherever, say that we are a very technical company. Like they, they say that we've built all the tools. However, since Rudini gives you so much freedom in doing things, like for example, uh, a layout artist who's previously kind of um, painted uh, maps to distribute moss on rooftops or ivy or whatever, or placed items by hand. 
now has this urge to tr at least try the procedural side of things, to scatter things based on on how Houdini kind of perceives surfaces and, and angles and so on in, with maps and kind of to build your own tools that suit your production best rather than relying on stuff that's available. And I think that's kind of why we have this perception of some of our artists being a very technical place. But maybe that just comes from, from using Houdini for almost everything. Yeah, you were one of the first, actually, from at least from the bigger companies, because I even remember when I was, I don't know, four years ago at Framestore, I remember when I was talking also with MPC, they're kind of start. I think Framestore were a little bit farther away, but which one? Let me just, no, it was different. So Framestore was just starting and they basically brought people from MPC helping them out, but it was already kind of 2018 or something like that, or 17. Um, and also like Weta is also kind of starting in, in the last years to go into that. So being, for example, I just saw when it was, uh, you did an episode with FX podcast, uh, 2012, and there you were already talking about Cat Atlas and, and Houdini. So yeah, it's definitely a long time. But I think if you are more in this environment, in the Houdini environment, in the FX environment, you automatically are more technical. It's, there is no other way, you know, it's like, if you're more in the animation, it's probably less your more effects it, you cannot choose basically you have to do that but since we talk about perception is like um is there something that you feel like is the identity of rice so huh what i would like the company to be perceived i would like the company to be perceived as a nice place to go to work uh something where you have people around you that you can relate to I would like to have everyone here the feeling that this is a very open-minded community where you can actually voice concerns, where you can talk to your superiors and tell them when you think something is not going to happen or when you're not happy. Um, I think the one thing that we already have established is that we, the founders and owners, are very approachable. Our desks are in the artist space. Like, we have just open open office uh, architecture um, with a lot of desks and we're kind of sitting in the middle of, of each team to listen into conversations, to pick up on concerns, uh, be it over time or choice of beverages and chocolate bars or... Drinking during work. That's... Yeah, you know, like the, I think that's kind of, for me, the most important thing. I think a lot of... A lot of issues that people have with working VFX can be um, avoided if people have a voice and feel heard. And that's kind of what we try to establish like ever since we founded the place. I hope that everybody feels the same, but like most of our employees have my cell phone number. And if they really feel like it or if they have a question or if they f feel unheard, or if they don't want to say something in a, in a bigger meeting where everybody's present, then they can really pick up the phone and give me a call. And I would really like to keep running the place that way to give everyone this familiar feeling to give them. Um, because I think a very important thing is like we're, we're not hiring all these people to, um, to do what we say. We hire all these people because every one of these artists has um, made some sort of experience somewhere. 
They, they might have learned how other companies do things well. They might see problems with how we do things and so on. And since we want to improve every day what we do and how we do it to make it less painful and less stressful for everyone involved, we're really very open to listening um, how we can improve things. And that's like there is like, yeah, as I said, it, it's not limited to pipeline stuff like oh uh, rigging i kind of need a new bipad rig because this one uh, the one we used at weather was blah 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 it's that's not the way we think of it we we want to have this like really in all aspects like oh is it hard to park your car when you come to work would you like to have a key to the bicycle basement would you have um uh, would you like to have company events more often uh can we talk about the overtime policy and so on like there is tons of things that are not necessarily work related but they are work environment related and we really like to hear that and um, to pick up on that and sometimes it might not be justified or maybe we have a different view but i think like for for 80 to 90 percent of of the times we can at least like tell people what our view of of the issue is or kind of how we can tackle it together yeah it just reminded me i have actually the because you said weather i was actually i don't know if you see it <laughs> <laughs> just have my shirt on uh, the alumni shirt is actually quite nice actually what i really really like about rice is because you just described how you wanted to especially like focused on the people that was the the whole um, basically description and it's interesting because uh, that's what basically what the question will be about is you also perceived differently, I would say, at least from from my experience. And I think probably some a lot of people would agree you're also perceived uh, differently. And I can give you an interesting example where this is st stick to, to me with Rice specifically. Uh, and it was FMX, I think oof, 2018, 17. It was definitely Captain America Civil War. And it was uh, FMX presentation with Trickster. You two guys are always doing the Marvel movies, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like a like a shared presentation. And I remember Trickster started, and it was basically like a cooperative speech. It was like, oh, Marvel is so amazing. Um, it was so, such an honor. It was so great. We love to do this. Uh, this is amazing, and this is fantastic. And you were you were sitting there as an audience, and you were just sleeping. Because it was the same, it was kind of cooperative talk, basically, in a way. It was, you heard that before, you didn't get any new information out of this. It was basically like like patting, pat, patting Marvel and on the project on the shoulder. And it felt very disgenuous for me, at least, you know, for... So, and then you sw they switched it up and then Rise presentation came on and you were talking about the trash truck. I remember this one and this one explodes. And then you had also the talk about um, Wonder WandaVision about her. I don't remember the, the specific term, but she does this wooji wooji. I think you called it very, how, how did you call it? The wiggly woo. The wiggly woo, exactly. <laughs> and, and it was completely different. Just the whole atmosphere, the whole way. Uh, I didn't felt that you care too much about like you know um like the the marvel or like audience in terms of like stockholder of marvel are sitting in in the audience and you want to please them and to show no it was about like we want to present our work 
and how it felt for us and that's the thing and that is something that stuck to me and for me it was a little bit like a rock and roll style uh especially compared to that one but that is how how i perceived that and for me that also created this thing that's an interesting company for me at least that's something i would be interested to work in because it didn't felt like the need of being perceived in a specific way just to keep someone happy well but that might be I mean, I have to, I have to uh, protect Alessandro here a bit because Alessandro is awesome and he did a great presentation back then. Um, but obviously, he's he's staff, he's he's employed at Trickster. It's not his company, and he feels that the entire weight of the company's reputation is on his shoulders in that moment. For me, it's kind of if if I if I choose to make things in a presentation a bit funny or silly or whatever, you know. It's my personal choice and it's my, the risk that I'm taking is to potentially um, make my company look silly. I obviously, I try to make it, maybe let's say. Oh, you, you did the, the presentation. I did the presentation, yeah. I didn't remember that. I just remembered the presentation. I actually didn't remember that it was. Yeah, you. well, that, I, th I think so. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to um, compare the presentation from a staff member to the presentation from one of the owners because an owner has much more freedom in the way that you would present something like that. That's a little bit unfair because at the end of the day, I was a visitor at the FMX. I, I saw literally a one hour talk of two companies, like half an hour, half an hour of the same topic, more or less from their point of view. And I don't know exactly who is it, why is that and whatever. So for me, it's only I see someone present their work. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not saying I needed to see a specific like, you know, negative joke or whatever that's not what i mean um I, I don't mind it was just that um on one side the presentation was not really it, it felt very constrained the first one the trickster presentation very, very very constrained and it felt very much pleasing to someone um while for example the, the again independent of who it was or who it wasn't you know for me it's just that's that's what i perceived so i, I was not Taking taking turns on someone specifically. That's why I said trickster and rice. I, did, I literally didn't know that yeah. you were. Just, but that's the thing that I, I felt like um, was interesting for me, just to see that the perception also to give outside. And my point is a little bit that I want to go. It's the same thing that that your LinkedIn account, for example, also doing a little bit. You know, taking things a little bit less serious. But I think this is really something where the um, where the management needs to take a risk. Um, like if you want to, that's that's kind of something that we decided early on, like I think in 2015 or 16, that we want to do things a bit differently and that if we want to compete with larger companies um, in recruiting good talent from abroad, then we will miserably fail if we do go down the same path as they do because we can't compete with any of the really super big companies when it comes to slate of work you know like if they have 25 shows lined up and the recruiters tell you you can work for either one of these and it's super awesome because it's superhero stuff or it's magical 
wizardry world of Harry Potter or whatever, you know, that's something that we definitely can't offer. And that for the next couple of years, we probably will not be able to, to offer because um, just because of the sheer numbers, right? I mean, we can't work on 25 films at the same time or TV series. That's just not who we are. That's not the capacity we have. But if we turn around and if we uh, run in the opposite direction, if we say from the start, you know what, we can't compete compete with numbers. We will not have the the uh, fur shaders of of Planet of the Apes. We will not have uh, three Star Wars movies and two series in production. We will not have not have this, not have this. Then don't even try. Don't try to compete with something where you know you're outnumbered from the start. You need to run in the exact opposite direction and not. don't try to even compete. Do something completely different. And that's why we started to come up with a marketing campaign that is so minimalistic, silly, does well on social media, and kind of spreads the news that we're doing cool stuff and that we're likable. And I think this, this aspect of being likable is hard to transmit in a corporate world. I mean, on the outside, every building is just glass and steel or a little bit of brick, you know, and the people working inside is kind of the important aspect. So it might be good for your uh, for your CV to have worked on a certain number of films or a certain in a certain position and so on. But I think once you're, you've reached a certain age or once you've worked in this industry for long enough, you find out that it's not about the credit anymore. It's about challenges and work that keep you up at night thinking of how to solve something, like your daily Rubik's Cube, basically. Um, because I think that's kind of one of the reasons why people get into this business in the first place. They want to be challenged and they want to be challenged with new things. They don't want to get into this habit of always doing the same thing over and over and over again. So I think that's one thing. And the other thing is, You want to do it with nice people who are just as silly and funny and likable as yourself. And that's kind of why we chose this approach. We wanted to say, you know what? We're doing the highest profile work there is in the world. We've worked on the most successful film of all times. We're doing effect simulation work on par with the large houses, despite being a boutique. We do kind of the same type of work but just as a much smaller business entity. And the one thing, the huge advantage of that smaller business entity is that it's all much more familiar. People get along well. They have a say in how things are supposed to be done. If they stick around for long enough, then they might be in a position where they can actually have more control over the process and so on. And I think that's kind of the essential bit that we were trying to transmit to, to people reading it, um, that we're likable and we do high profile work. And I think it worked out really well in the end. I mean, it's, yeah, as I said, like we can't compete with numbers, but we can compete with humor and we can compete with the type of work we do. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I just kind of find it quite quite uh, interesting and funny that it was actually you that I remember. I just didn't remember that you specifically, and you're now here. <laughs> it's like, but yeah, no, it it stick to me. It was actually one of the presentation that I remembered, and it was one of the presentation that um, created something in me. You know, like a seed of like, oh, if I would like to work in Germany for a company, it would be rice. You know what? I think 
It's just that I'm not knowledgeable enough to do a presentation that shows all the technicalities of the work. <laughs> I, I think I just can't pay attention for long enough. So I kind of try to um, hide it with, with humor and silliness. So that might be the reason, you know. I remember it was definitely not as technical, uh, but, yeah. it was still, uh, <laughs> but it was still good. Again, again, uh, it's it's always uh, a little bit. What does this talk about? You know, I, I don't think I was expecting the most technical breakdown from this uh, civil war uh, talk. So um, for me, that was actually the thing. And again, it's always like you said, like what do you focus on? Who do you want to please? You know, and and it's weird for me to please someone who's not there actually <laughs> because i'm the audience i want to see you know and i don't want to see the the for example the breakdown that you can see on youtube that's the most disappointing thing for me always to, to see the presentation that you literally can't see on youtube or something i like totally that. agree with you that presentations at conventions have gotten very boring and i think people want to see people fail i think <laughs> oh god no 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 i don't mean that in a in a bad way i think people want to know how you got there and which mistakes you made along the way so that you yourself can learn from the presentation and avoid those hurdles in the future. And I think this is kind of where everything is now so corporate and so streamlined. And when you watch those talks, there was never an issue. They shot something, they replaced everyone it. Everyone loved in, everyone. They, they replaced it entirely with CG because that's better anyway. And, you know, and then they get out the big guns and you see turntables of every asset and then you see the asset in the shot and so on. But where were the issues, you know, like now with everybody working, like starting to get their hands dirty with real time engines, did you see any issues? Were there any obstacles? Like what was the process of integrating that type of engine into your daily routine and so on. Where, you know, that that's the stuff that usually when you have those large panels, nobody's talking about. They just say how they did it and, and what the solution was. But I really want to know like what the process was to get there. And I think you can spice up every presentation and make it worth everyone's while by just telling them honestly what didn't work and where you struggled. And I think that makes some of the presentations from, from students or smaller companies super interesting because they don't have an expert for everything. They have they have basically have to do it all themselves. They have to find out, read the manual basically and, and try to find a workaround or make things work in a different way if they don't have the sheer manpower and an R&D department to provide certain things and so on, you know? Like what, um, that, I think sometimes these smaller presentations are are way more interesting if they do innovative stuff than than just this corporate stuff of turntables and full CG shots. But who am I to judge? <laughs> you heard it, guys, from Florian. Start with your failures in the beginning and then move on to the success part. No, but that's what I that's what I mean. I'm not sure if I would call failures in the end. You want to see the problem solving, but the problem solving shouldn't be went through a gremium of, of people kind of like deciding like which problem can we actually show that is not too hurting us, you know, we're not too incompetent. And it's it's just this is and this is a bit little bit what I'm a little bit was talking about. Um like a presentation is something in a way you want some knowledge you know it's not like just uh, it's not a commercial it also adds drama to the presentation you know like if you if you show like what was at stake and that things just 
weren't working out. Like if you watch a good documentary, it's always the the emotional payoff towards the end of making things work is much higher if you show the failure at the be like the stakes at the beginning and show that things just didn't work out as expected. And then I think like in every good documentary or movie, you know, like if there are no stakes, you don't feel for the characters. In a presentation, that might also be the case when you don't feel with the person on stage because everything worked from the start and there was never a question whether this was doable or not. You know, it's it's you just don't care because you know you can't relate. You have your own issues. You don't have the firepower of one of the bigger facilities. And then you're looking at a presentation where you think like, well, obviously it all worked just fine because they're awesome. Yeah, yeah, I think I think there's also multiple reasons. But again, I what I, what I'm I was hinting at a little bit is is this kind of uh, making things too perfect and at the same time making them boring, um, just because you don't want to step in the wrong. You know, this is this is also the game that you play a little bit with with being like puns and memes and funny and stuff like that it can uh, shoot in the wrong direction you know it can uh, be perceived by potential clients as as like oh, they're not serious enough uh, for that or it can also be uh, seen by potential hirings uh, they like oh like this they're just joking it's not like uh so i think there is always of course the danger but it's a little bit like this danger of um, social media nowadays. Uh, are you a real person or are you trying to pretend to, like so to be someone just to peace out? And nowadays it's literally on LinkedIn and whatever. And we talked about this, for example, the more you pretend, the, the, the first thing it's harder to keep on this facade for too long. And second one, nowadays, the less interesting you are normally it's because the, it, it is you you do you do a template from someone else or for something that works and you basically drown in the in the other people say who do the same thing you know other companies as you described who do exactly the same thing so why should we hire rise if we have 50 100 other companies who do exactly the same more or less the same they all have houdini they all have maya they all have artists it's not like you just have yours and no one else. And uh, I think that's important. I think um, having also a personality, and that's why I talked about identity as a company, is important. And it obviously, Rise has one. And I think it is driven by internally um, from you and all, all basically people that are all part of this whole process. Um, but I think it's also driven by like not wanting to be in this box you know just like okay uh because it's boring you know like imagine you would you would do a boring presentation and you would do it like 10 of them a month a year or whatever it's just not interesting it kind of comes in handy if you have like a let's say if you're if you're just taking advantage of a of a pre-existing uh presentation then obviously it kind of uh limits the work that you have to put in yourself which is fine. I mean, you can you can have the same presentation five times, especially if it's different audience. You don't have to to be unique all every five minutes, but you can create a like you know that's what I sometimes do. I like I do my master classes, and of course it's more or less the same with differences in situations. Um, but the thing is, if you start to like you know just basically. It could be everyone who presents. Basically, it could be any company who presents. Basically, just switch out the logo, works. Yeah, you know, I think that that is a little bit the point I was I was making. And again, for me, it on me it made an impression. 
So, cool. Well, uh, glad you liked it. Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I couldn't remember the, the magic part, but I remember the trash truck thing and stuff like that. That was definitely something. Welcome to our short mid-episode coffee break. If you love the content and would like to have a successful career in the film or games industry yourself, check out my website 21artistshow.com. There you can find helpful articles, masterclasses and coaching opportunities that help dozens of my students to bring their profession to the next level. That's all. Check out 21artistshow.com and share the podcast with cool people you know. Let's continue with the episode. One of the things nowadays, we cannot avoid it, remote work. I think it's also something I I have an opinion on that, but uh, that I will give after after your yours. But I'm interested because you have a complete different point of view on that one from like a broader, bigger company size of. Um, first thing, what do you think of remote work? And do you see it as positive, negative, middle for the company work itself? It definitely has its ups and downs um i think the the good thing is that everybody managed to transform their business relatively quickly in a time of crisis uh to protect people's and uh, people and to keep them safe um so i think that's kind of the the biggest advantage um i think for some people who have their daily tasks that they have to do um, it also works exceptionally well outside of a pandemic. Like if you are, for example, the water guy at a, at, at, at a facility and you're being given those shots and, and you kind of basically tweak your sims oh, every day. I was like the water guy, like, you know, who, who fills the water tanks. And it's like, <laughs> like, how do you do that? <laughs> I was like, what is going on? Yeah. Okay. No. Okay. We're still FX. <laughs> 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 no, but uh, if if you, if you like have your daily ta tasks and notes to tackle and so on to just check out check the boxes of your daily to dos, I think working remotely works relatively well. I think the key aspects of where it fails miserably is um, I think that visual effects is a team sport. I think a team sport needs to be played in a team in the same room where you pick up on each other's vibes, where you can look at each other's screens, where you can see how other people do the same type of work as you do to improve, improve your own work. And this is, and then kind of something where I think the entire industry will start to struggle in the years to come is, uh, especially with the amount of work out there is mentorships because if you have interns or students or junior artists who need a strong mentor who shows them how things are being done, um, who shows them other people doing the same type of work, who gives them a chance to look over their shoulder on how to solve certain issues, um, how to key a green screen well, how to do edge treatments, how to do, you know, like obviously there are tutorials for a lot of things, but then there is kind of the human touch. And I think few of us would be where we are today if we wouldn't have had that one chance and that one mentor or maybe a couple of mentors in our career who guided us. And I think this is kind of where we were working from home really runs short because if you do 
working from home for mentorships, it's going to end up being feeling like like watching tutorials on YouTube or kind of doing like a little bit of mentorship like every once in a while. But I think this constant stream of information of everyone around you is what kind of defines you as an artist later in in the VFX business. And I think if we go away from from working at facilities in the offices, then this is kind of where the industry will suffer severely in the years to come. I think um, there are definitely uh, days where I prefer working from home. If I just have my spreadsheets to look at and if I have to focus real hard on work and I don't need any distractions from the outside, then definitely much better working from home. But I think for all aspects of working in a team-oriented business and making things work up to the bitter end until the last pixel is pushed out through the door to the client and approved, I think that's something where you really need, need to sit together in an office and kind of enjoy, enjoy... <laughs> <laughs> um this the 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 profession that you have for what it is and i would really hate to see this go away yeah i mean the biggest point and i noticed that when i was i was working one year for weta on um, their projects for a year remote and uh i think the and uh, by the way sebastian great job uh, i had a mentor who was bringing me into the company and showing me the ropes and he did a fantastic job it was just that first thing the feeling was m missing a little bit like it went very fast away because you were like you were still home you were still in south of france uh 12 hours difference you know completely different you you didn't feel the team and one of the things for example i didn't felt the positive and negative stress because I was so detached, you know, like I'm I'm switching on my computer and I'm looking at the screen. There maybe, you know, burning, things are not working, pipeline breaking, whatever. I don't feel anything of that, especially also with the time shift and whatever. And uh, and of course, for the randomness goes away, you know, randomly bumping into someone, randomly having, as you mentioned, a mentor because you were sitting in the cafeteria and then start to talk with someone and then he's super nice and then kind of you created this relationship to the person, friends, whatever. Um, I think that goes completely away. And as you basically mentioned in the beginning, that's why I was, I was curious about this topic. Um, you want to work with people that, you know, they basically founded the company to work with people you like. You want to have your job about the people, as you mentioned multiple times already. So I think remote takes it away in, in a lot of sense. And, in, and it, it comes also with the feeling of being more robotic. Uh, yeah, in terms of that. Exactly. Uh, working from home means that your work is only work related. There is no distraction. It's everything you do, every conversation, or let's say 99.9% .9 of the conversations that you're going to have are work related. There is only little small talk. There is nothing that you learn about your co-workers, about their strengths and weaknesses. It's only kind of, you're only there for the work. And I mean, I should love this being a company owner myself, you know? I mean, we can grow our team now with remote working artists beyond the capacity of our office space. We can now employ like thousands of people 
and we don't have to rent the space for it because they are just working on their own tech being connected to our render farm. You only need the infrastructure, basically, in yeah. terms of uh, connection. We can hire and fire on a daily basis. You know, oh, that guy isn't performing well or he didn't log on on time. Let's turn off his connection and cancel the contract. We can book people from Brazil if they're cheaper. If we can book people from Canada, we can, you know, like all sorts of things, like all over the world. We can look for the cheapest wages and employ people remotely. And for a business owner, it's actually a dream come true. But <laughs> as I said earlier, that's not necessarily the reason why we started this business. And I think everybody should be just aware that this is kind of a people's business. And if it's not being run like a people's business, it's just going to feel like a big machine and you're just small wheel in the end, or maybe a slightly larger wheel. But um, yeah, I don't know if this is kind of the right direction to take uh, the industry. Um, I, I doubt it. I think in some scenarios it makes sense, especially when you're working part time uh, or if you have kids at home and so on. But at the same time, you know, like your home isn't a nursery, like you're not supposed to watch kids while you work. Like when you're being paid for work, then you're there for the work and you're not kind of doing anything else. You're not ironing shirts. You're not looking after the kids. You're not, you know, like that's kind of we have to differentiate between what the work relationship means and what people are looking for. I mean, I totally understand it that a lot of people hate the long commute and it kind of takes two hours of their day um, to just travel to work and back home again. And I get that and I can perfectly relate to it. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's here to stay, but we still have to find out how to make it work in the best uh, in the best way for everyone involved. I mean, as I said, like for the companies, it's great for people, not necessarily. The mixture, and I, I hear the same thing from from you, is the best solution. Is kind of giving the opportunity of. Uh, I think generally, I think in person is better for most days, but I think having the opportunity because I think everyone knows this this problem of uh, living life and still working, and you have doctor's appointments shopping things you have something planned and you you know it is kind of like after work you have to rush to the supermarket or whatever uh, or trying to make a thousand things work at the same time i think remote makes it much much easier and if you can pick i don't know one day two days in a week that you can maybe shift around if you necessary if you can do that i think that is already improves even the quality from before even and I think that is something really, really amazing. But on the on the flip side, and it's um, I bring this example that I have at work, but I bring it also in this podcast is if the the benefit is I can I can talk to anyone for this podcast. I can talk to you. You're in Berlin. I'm in South of France currently. Um, perfect, great. The the negative part is that on on one side the kind of the excitement and positivity goes a little bit down. It's not as exciting as we would be sitting in the same room. And the other part is the negativity of the uh, when we have a conflict or something goes up. Because, for example, when uh, when we previously had the situation where I was bashing on Trickster, you were pushing against that. For me, I wasn't sure how you mean it because it I couldn't feel you as much as a, so for me it means I always have to be even for the podcast I always have to be a little bit down because I'm I cannot 100% calculate uh, through a webcam and through a monitor 
how much I maybe upset you if I if I uh, push harder on this question, which mm-hmm. I, it's not my point, but I, because I maybe want to understand or I just this is what I saw, this is what I what I what I describe, but maybe it's upset you or, or other way around, and it's much much harder to feel so. It's really hard to to balance it out at the end, and it feels everything is kind of one is is turned up and one is turned down a little bit, and I think this is a big loss in terms of also the product. I mean, the, uh, you know, uh, just the emotions that you feel about uh, uh, about what you do, the emotions that you feel to your team could shift a little bit in in a pure remote work, at least from my experience. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, that also uh, goes for for written conversations. Obviously, you know, like not every conversation you're having is is through video conferencing. A lot of the conversations you're having is also just based on on messenger texts or or email. And I think also, yeah, there is a lot of conversations. Uh, uh, there is a lot of those conversations happening between the lines, where you're not a hundred percent sure what the general tone is tone is yeah and and that's very difficult also just another thing about video conferencing and and getting a hold of people is like way harder yeah you know like now i i used to go to the coffee machine in the office and i would peek onto everybody's screen i would see who's in who's out for lunch i would know what the status is if people are prioritizing correctly and I wouldn't have had to just pick up a phone. I'm just going for a coffee. And now all these steps take effort. Every single time you need to uh, check if somebody's actually at their desk. You have to make sure that they're not out for lunch, that they're available for conferencing. You text them here, you email them there, you make, you know, you're trying to gather the team for, for a spontaneous discussion. It's not like you can just see whether they're here or if they're busy with other things and there's also no no way of of getting an answer more quickly than than writing in a messenger and sitting there impatiently waiting for somebody to text back and i think this is kind of the time that you're losing in production uh every day where just messages go unnoticed and there is no direct line to everyone uh to just um Pick a fight. I almost said uh, to, to to start to start <laughs> so that's, a personal that's what, conversation. That's what Florian doing all the time. He's running around, picks fights. Yeah. So that's why yeah. people are motivated. I will show him. But I think you know, like the the flow of information is much slower now. You always yes. have to wait for an answer. You have to wait for availability. You have to schedule a meeting. You have to drag people into some sort of video conferencing tool. You have to pull up stuff on a screen that you. St- first have to load because it's not already up on the screen because it's not the artist's workstation and so on and so on. I think like this whole process of, of, of reviewing work and of communicating as a team has gotten way harder than before. And that puts a lot of additional pressure on, on the production teams. Also, when you're doing hybrid stuff with half of the team here, where information travels freely and everybody's kind of on the same page within a couple of seconds, you always have a couple of people watching through the webcam who are not necessarily part to an equal amount of that conversation, you know? And that's, yeah. Anyway. I know reasons and I know that there are there is a good cause involved in, in, in working from home, but I think in the end, 
it works better in favor of, of the work that you're doing and uh, the, the relationship that, that you have with coworkers and how you develop yourself as a human being and as an artist if you're at the office. It makes also sense in terms of memory, psychologically seen, because memory, for example, is, is best created with experience. Yeah. If your experience is looking at the screen, it's basically all the memories are the same experiences. You know, you're not, um, and in terms of also like someone said something, you cannot remember. It's always on the screen, you know, because before that, maybe someone said someone at his desk, maybe someone said her, someone at the cafeteria, maybe just, just a different environment already sets up memory points which are not there if you have always this one screen and the other thing is now everything is about like a chat and email yeah before that you could at least divide information through uh, like real meetings through uh, like a talk at the or a coffee machine and stuff and like that. now it's, it's it's always a teams or skype or whatever it's always an email it's always on a, on a webcam on stuff like that so uh, same thing there is no separation between that so basically you get dumped even more with more information and i'm not sure how does it rise but i feel also the the amount of written information is even excessively even more than yeah actually before and not just like compensating just overcompensating basically yeah. for, for uh, the amount just to make sure that it's really correct that it's understood like in that and i think that is uh, super uh hard to, to to grasp and like again like you forget a lot of things because you you have seven 27 chats open uh, and, and sometimes the history is so long that you like i i don't read the whole thing from like beginning to end so i think that is that is a really really hard hard thing to deal with i mean i said earlier that working from home kind of gives you like limits the distraction that you have and and keeps all the 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 other unwanted uh, uh distractions away from you i mean that's obviously as you just said only true for to a certain extent because the the work conversations that you need to have about the work that you are doing notes and the team that you are involved with and so on i think you're kind of being involved in way more of the conversation that is necessary for you just because you're gathering people in a Zoom meeting rather than just shouting something through the room. <laughs> Who has the shot seven? Well, the thing is, once you're in a, in a video call, you're stuck there. You're, yes. you're, you're, you're in that group of people. And even though the information being distributed at a certain point in time isn't necessarily for you, you're still stuck there and you have to stick around and you have to listen to the rest of the conversation until it's your turn. And I think like that, in that sense, it's the obvious, the, the opposite of, of, of what I said earlier, that it's not as distracting. In some ways, it's even more distracting and keeping you more from work just because these briefings and work conversations that you need to have aren't specifically aimed just as you, at you. It's, kind of a group of people that you might be a part of, but not all that info is for you. So I think like the direct approach of, of tapping someone on the shoulder in the office and saying like, you know what, you can improve this by doing this and that and so on is much more straightforward, gives you, saves so much time, uh, gives the info to the individual that it's meant for and doesn't keep everybody else from working. To be fair, I think you normally don't leave meetings. It's not typical that you're in the middle of the, the half of the group suddenly leaves or people leave like 
constantly. Um, but what I also mean with the with the access is actually it, it there is an incentive to include more people because there is nothing like you know it's not hard. I just add a few names, just add Florian to every meeting in existence because it's just a click away, uh, and then like he can decide or whatever. I think if you have the policy of uh, leave, if you if there is nothing for you there, I think that works kind of counterbalance it but again it's it's easier to just click or add someone in cc or invite someone else and then suddenly you have this overwhelming in amount of information that 99 you probably maybe don't even need but people want to make sure and whatever and i think that is also it unbalances a little bit just the whole situation a little bit shift and a little bit to the to the current situation of unity and weta um, I would be curious because we were talking about growth, we were talking about identity, and for me, this these are uh, very kind of combined entities. And yeah, recently Unity bought uh, Weta uh, Digital, and uh, Microsoft bought Blizzard, Netflix bought Scanline, a little bit longer, Technicolor bought MPC, uh, and so on. So. How do you, first thing, how do you feel being acquired? <laughs> because in terms of growth, that's one of the best ways to grow, I would say, to get someone financing you, giving you the opportunity to reach out all over the world. It's always, of course, the fastest growth. Um, and how do, you, how do you feel about identity and being bought out? Because, I mean, as an owner, that's, that's definitely in your rights to be, to sell your company or sell your shares at least. I think that for us, we probably wouldn't consider a single content outlet as as a potential buyer just because um, we just enjoy the variety of the market too much. I think um, getting getting work from all sorts of sources is very, very compelling and also uh, good for our artists because they might be working on a Harry Potter movie one or a Fantastic Beast movie like we just did and then they move on to do a Marvel show and so on so there is a good a good variety of shows around also it doesn't mean that we can't work for Netflix obviously we can't as I said like their appetite for work is gigantic um, so I think like that's those are all factors to consider um, we, we haven't necessarily thought about like how to get rid of the place or how to sell it uh, in the short term. I mean, it's often often combined with, of course, you uh, like buy out, of course, as you mentioned, you want to get maybe away, you want to <laughs> buy an island or something like that, um, or uh, financial negative reasons in terms of you're kind of like on the, on the down, downhill or uh, growth. You know, you want to have uh, all like rice everywhere on the world, which of course is much slower if you do it yourself. So you can get someone like Technicolor or something like that swoop in and you say like, or Unity or maybe Unreal does the same thing and kind of says like, okay, we want our engine everywhere um, and then kind of supports that. But, but in a way, what I mean, there is clearly a reason why people do it, of course. But uh, the question is a little bit, because we talked about identity, do you think you can still keep your identity and that? Because a lot of, like, you can see, basically, I, I don't think I know any example where the identities keep going. Blizzard, Activision. Blizzard is dead. Uh, Weta will be seeing. Um, I don't know, Scanline, if it has an identity, but... Uh, that, so basically, that's the question because it feels like because it's it's always about money. I mean, it's big corporations who buy it because of financial reasons. 
and they are normally not as interested in identity and because the rain on stuff changes of course that identity is one of the first thing that goes away and it becomes this cooperative thing so my question is a little bit in, in the sense of like can you be bought up and still keep the identity realistically or is it that something that basically goes away the moment the like people like you lose control i think that heavily depends on the buyer because as i said like in a staff position you're probably not taking the same risks that play with your identity and play with the perception of your company to everybody uh, uh in front of their screens um i think you do like take those risks um consciously as an as a business owner because you think that there is a very high probability that you will succeed um i don't know for uh, i really don't know how that would influence us in that particular case it i think it it always depends on if the potential buyer or the new business owner would perceive your current company image as something to cherish and to maintain i think that's that's kind of the 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 main the, the core of it all if they think that you should have new business cards and new new uh letterheads on your invoices you know and and all that uh um social media mumbo jumbo goes away then yeah obviously the the company image will probably suffer or the the company's perception um but at the same time you could probably grow the business to a certain extent quickly um and and work on on more shows and so on and and broaden your footprint so that you have access to more talent and so on and then the question is and that's probably also the case with most other companies being bought does it matter beyond a certain point when you're big enough when when you are your own planet or your own ecosystem does perception from the outside as long as you're not uh treating your 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 employees unfairly that's obviously off the table right like if you're if you're running running a, a ship that where people suffer and and don't like working there then that's completely different but i think once you're big enough your work is exceptional you win all sorts of awards and you employ thousands of people um i think there is there is no way around you and once you've gained that size and that important to the marketplace it just doesn't matter if you're funny or not <laughs> true true um but i think <laughs> okay um I, what I that is true but in the end of the day it's not about funniness it's a little bit about company culture and what's the focus of that because that's what's happening exactly with a lot of companies that become too cooperative they become of like oh yeah we can whatever uh, put everything to India or we can uh, this industry is very weak so we, we don't do overtime here or that that is a lot of times the reason because there's no identity it's like just looking at the spreadsheet looking what you can do lawfully in this country and then just do it you know if you if you can close a company tomorrow vancouver will come um and then close it to, to like you know one week later basically one year later two years later close it after project is finished sure uh, if it makes sense financially why not and that's what i mean with identity also not just being being jokey and having fu funny memes and puns it's all about like 
do you have principles and you don't have principles is if money is the driving factor in, the, in that case yeah, money is a principle but you don't have principles in terms of people or work-life balance or whatever because at the end of the day if the spreadsheet says it works and you grow and grow and grow where do you grow that always goes along with having a share shareholders because if shareholders invest in your company for a profit then there is usually like maybe not if you're talking about blood diamonds but there is like <laughs> a, a limit weird side note here rise of x uh we should have to look into that one but there is probably a limit to ethics and moral like what you should or should not do like if if one of your business entities or facilities is not doing well financially or is not booked well or if you have trouble finding talent and so on then they will have let's say they will come more easily to the decision to close down a place and to open up somewhere else um, than we would. That's for sure. But then again, you know, like... But it also, sometimes the reason why it needs to be closed is a lot of times tied to the decisions around that, you know, like pushing all the project to a specific area and then this area kind of dies out and then like, oh, we need to close it. Uh, because there's this kind of like, you know, looking at the tax reductions, looking like, of course... No, no one should say like you pay uh, go to the most worst tax place and stuff. That's not what I'm. But yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Is like this kind of principle of of okay, we have a, a a site in Canada. Maybe we should use the environment that we have there for the very specific things. Um, and looking at the what they're good at, the group there, instead of just cooking at like just taxes, just whatever you know, and and hoping that the other. Th guys will make it work or something like that which again and that's that's a little bit what i'm what i'm coming from identity is more than jokes and and memes and stuff it's a little bit of principles it's principles besides money um that that drives you of course you should be profitable that's part of business but there's a big difference as you mentioned like you know as you should have you wouldn't go to work if it was just like how much uh, kind of equity you get, uh, how much money you get now every week more because you are a shareholder. Yeah, I mean, there are there are uh, different aspects of why you would be shareholder of a business. And for some people, it's profit. And for other people, it's more than that. Definitely as a masochistic part element of that. In yeah. Back to eating glass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, again, I think it's also a little bit different. For, 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 I think it's also because um, Elon Musk, he also had this the best, bad experience with PayPal and stuff. It's uh, that a little bit also coming from that is like losing control. And I also had Carl Rosendale, for example, before that here. And he was bought, or like PDI was bought by DreamWorks. And it's also same thing. PDI is not closed. DreamWorks still alive. Um, why do you think that? because they shifted everything and they basically kind of flipped the company culture and PDI didn't work anymore. Yeah. Um, and that's a little bit the point I was kind of, and of course, from your perspective, I wanted to see uh, what's your focus because I would say from, from the timeline, you're coming slowly to this point where it becomes actually very interesting to, to buy rise. From someone else because it's like okay they're have a big they're big in germany they start to branch out uh they have a standing now they have a standing in the community kind of you know basically like buying blizzard a little bit you know there's kind of a positioning there so buy you buy you buy the identity you buy the positioning you buy the clients uh and can make sense and it's a little bit the question is like is it actually something that you sh you want 
as you, if you have a company? Is that something that you should strive upon? Or is it something where, yes, if I don't want to work anymore there, sure. But if I want to continue having fun and enjoyment and growing with that. I think it, it, it really boils down to like, what am I going to do once the company is sold? Am I still going to work there? Do I still have a say in where how the business or what we do business-wise? Am I going to be so filthy rich that I can afford my own island and never have to go to work anymore? You buy another visual effects company. Afterwards. Yeah, you know, like, I mean, there are always these stories of people winning the lottery and then filing their resignation at work and then finding out, like, how much of their actual win is taxes and that, like, five years from now, it'll all be gone and they, they will have to get into work again. And I think it's, like, very... Like, again, numbers is kind of the, the foundation of everything. Mm, of course. It really depends on what the offer is. It de Like, maybe probably not right now because it's just our little miniature model train where you kind of put in a tree here and build another house and put it there and, and plant a little bit of grass and put in a couple of additional tracks and see how it goes and so on. And um, it's just way too much fun. I don't I don't know. It's uh, I, I really can't tell. It, it would have to be probably something that has to do with visual effects and not just some sort of crazy a Chinese bank who's coming to you and says like, hey. Well, you here's, know, yeah. here's five trillion dollars i totally agree with you like for for a couple of hedge funds or whatever we're probably super appealing as a business if they need someone from kind of the media uh, um uh, like like a media company in their portfolio and so on probably but um that's not necessarily what we're after right it's it's um no let's let's just say yeah we we really haven't thought that through also I think we haven't gotten the right offer yet and it's it's still too early in the process. It's just, uh, we're okay. just enjoying this too much. Final question. I would like to wrap it up a little bit. And for me, because I know it's kind of a dream, I think for a lot of people or definitely a hand of people to found their own company, some kind of in the future, uh, a lot of times because Maybe like you, you have you have this group of people you love to work with and you want to consistently work with them. Maybe it's something like you want to specific, create specific works that you love or a way that, that you want to work and stuff like that. What are the things that you feel like is are the most important thing for being an, an owner of, of a company in terms of founding it, in terms of keeping it? Um, what are the things that you feel you're doing right that you feel is important for you and you're trying to push that it keeps on going in this way well i think that everybody who has a certain position at rise knows that they can really knock on our door and tell them if something's wrong and i think like i i don't necessarily think that we all have like that amazing vision where this place needs to be or where we want to take it um i think that the team feels comfortable with the way that that we do things and with the work that's interesting enough that's coming in and so on always keeps them challenged and so on i think we try to be fair i think we try to uh make this a this a down-to-earth and humble uh working environment and while we have hierarchies we encourage everybody to kind of just sp to speak out freely um and i hope that 
works and i hope that everybody has the same perception of of what we're trying to do it's hard to say it's um i would like this company to be just perceived as as friendly open and and uh like as an extended work family for everyone involved and if uh somebody disagrees and has a problem then they should be able to approach us freely and i think we're accessible enough i think that's kind of the 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 one key ingredient that we four founders bring to the table is accessibility i think that's like not only for the outside clients but especially like for everybody working here from for the inside team to be accessible and um, even though we might be disagreeing on a couple of topics i think just being accessible and being there for the conversation is core of the business that we run as we said earlier in this conversation everybody started small at some point everybody can still remember those days sitting in long nights with the the help menu open or the help website open and some youtube tutorials every or, day every day you know, <laughs> like, yeah um so i think since everybody like almost everyone in this business had a humble beginning and most people can still relate to that i think everybody's really approachable and um i think you see that also when you're hanging out at, at conventions and so on, how approachable even the biggest of supervisors are. Like people who are in charge of VFX of a, of a 250, 300 million dollar production um, or, or like uh, Jen and Dan who've been in charge of Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. Um, they are the most approachable, nicest people in the world. And I think that's kind of the key ingredient that you see that this whole industry is hopefully not just perceived by me, but by many, uh, a place where in the majority, nice people work who know that they had humble beginnings themselves. That's great. So Florian, thank you very much for giving us an insight into what it means to be an owner of a visual effects company, specifically Rice here, and also a little bit of, of uh, understanding what it means to work for Rice, what it means to to kind of create an environment where people love to work, expand even uh, in that. And uh, yeah, appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. That's it with this week's episode of the 21 Artist Show. Thank you so much for watching and listening. This podcast is 100% ad free. And to keep it that way, check out my website, 21artistshow.com. There you can find exclusive access to awesome masterclasses and coaching opportunities to work successfully in visual effects, animation, and games. Just go to 21artistshow.com. And don't forget to share it with people who would benefit from that content and tell them they're awesome. See you on the next episode. Next on the 21 Artist Show. You then tell me how easy it is to go and do videos every week. You go and tell me how easy it is to write scripts and to talk to a camera and to film all this bullshit and to actually do these videos and make them work. You go and try to promote videos every week and you put a post and you have two likes, you know, like it is always, always against you. The algorithm is against you. The Twitter is against you. Reddit is against you. Everyone is against you. It's just hard. and. At some point, the only thing left for me is to just do whatever I want. That's what I've reached my conclusion.